Hello, I'm Kate Chabot with an extra edition of BFBS SITREP. This week we spoke to Judith Mackerel about her new book that retells the story of the Second World War from a different perspective. Going with the Boys comes from the accounts of six remarkable women who defied official attempts to block them and became war correspondents. Their stories include risking execution to reveal evidence of Germany's plan to invade Poland and reporting from the beaches of Normandy while more than 500 male journalists were confined to their boats. But in this extradition, we wanted you to also hear the women's own stories, what drove them, how their journalism differed from men's accounts and what happened when the fighting stopped and they came home. Judith and I also discussed parallels with the experiences of those who've served their country at war and the women who have fought for the right to do that. Judith, really good to speak to you. There have been so many accounts of the Second World War. Why did you choose to tell it through the experiences of six female correspondents? I think even though more and more historians are beginning to recover women's voices and women's stories, there is still a sense that wars are written by men for an audience of men and largely focus on the experiences of men, which you know is not surprising until recently it was essentially men who were out there in the battle zones. But these women, their perspective I think is unique, partly uh, just because of the way in which some of them chose to write about the war, maybe perhaps from a more, from more from the perspective of individual people, combatants, as well as civilians, rather than perhaps just in terms of battle movements and when, you know, troop numbers and gains and losses, but also because the difficulty that they had uh, in 1939, getting to the war zones themselves, was very typical then of the attitude of the military towards women, which was essentially that, you know, wars were, were not for the weaker sex, that blood and noise and danger were going to be too much for any female journalist, that somehow there was something dangerous about women being present amongst, you know, divisions of soldiers, you know, they might provoke sexual unrest, they might cause men from uh, motives of misplaced chivalry to try and protect the women journalists rather than get on with the business of fighting. And most Uncomfortably of all was the issue of, you know, toilet facilities. You know, would women require their own special facilities out in the battle zones? So time and time again, when my six women wanted to get to the news, they were being prevented by the military bureaucracy. Uh, and of course, today, when we see women correspondents reporting from crisis zones around the planet. And also when female soldiers are fighting in most of the world's armies, those, those perceptions seem you know, so dinosaur, so outdated. But just 70 years ago, they were really real. You know, war was not considered to be a woman's place. And is there something new and different that their stories tell us about the war? Were you surprised by anything? Um, the women themselves covered the war from quite a variety of perspectives. So in terms of uh, the women who were writing for daily newspapers, their reports perhaps were more, were more brisk, more factually orientated. But for women like Lee Miller and Martha Gellhorn, who were writing for magazines and had 
much more space. What was extraordinary was their first-hand, very physical, very emotional um, account of what it was like to be in those war zones. Um, the state of mind of soldiers, I mean, very often women uh, were on the end of receiving end of confidences that perhaps men wouldn't feel free to give to men um, and would talk about their families back home. They would talk about their fears under fire. So I, I think as a sort of visceral impression of war, some of those women's writings are absolutely unmatched actually. But also it was in certain cases, the very fact that it was so difficult for them to get to the news that they weren't part of the official press corps, that they got to stories that men didn't get. So for instance, Martha Gellhorn, who was furious that when the Allied Armada crossed the channel to um, begin the liberation of France in 1944. 550 journalists were allowed to sail with that Armada, but none of them were women. And she was so furious, so resentful, uh, so determined to get the story that she rode stowaway on a hospital ship. And having arrived at Omaha Beach on day two of the invasion of France, um, <clears throat> was actually allowed on shore because she was helping uh, the medical teams collect injured soldiers from the, from the beach, from Omaha Beach, and bring them back on board ship for treatment. And unlike her male colleagues who were only allowed to report on the action from planes or ships, she was there mm. on the beach uh, with the fighting just going on uh, behind the sandy cliffs. So her account was simply by virtue of the obstacles that have been placed in front of her. Her account was more vivid and more raw and more human as well um, than most of her male colleagues because then she was traveling back on that hospital ship back to the south of England. And some of those wounded soldiers were German and she wrote wonderful insight about how everybody felt towards the Germans, that they weren't these kind of blonde giants that everybody feared, but were rather kind of pathetic, sad people. And how did you choose the women you wrote about? Well, I came across the first of them, uh, Helen Kirkpatrick, by accident. Actually, I was, was researching a previous book and someone had recommended a history of the Ritz Hotel in Paris. Couldn't be more uh, unmilitary. Uh, but there was a fantastic chapter in that book about the Ritz during World War II and a wonderful um, anecdote about this young woman, Helen, who had arrived in Paris the day after it was liberated, one of the first journalists and certainly the first female journalist, and had been invited to lunch with the writer Ernest Hemingway at the Ritz. Now, he was sort of going around Paris basically saying he'd he and his gang of resistance fighters had liberated the city, certainly that he'd liberated the Ritz, all of which was baloney. But he um, commandeered the Ritz for a lunch. He invited Helen Kirkpatrick. They all got very drunk and their war stories got more and more kind of heroic and self-aggrandizing. But at a certain point, Helen uh, said, actually, 
there's a lot of news happening out on the streets. It's time for me to, to go out and do some work. And Hemingway was all, sit down, sit down. You know, you'll never again be able to say that you were dining with Ernest Hemingway at the Ritz the day after Paris was liberated, you know, classic macho war ego. And But she got up and left and uh, she scooped what she said was the most extraordinary story of her career, which was at the celebration of Thanksgiving being held at Notre Dame with de Gaulle and the other French generals. And unbeknownst to the Allied troops yet, the Germans had left 50,000 snipers around the city to harry the Americans in their takeover. And some of these were hidden in the roofs and inside the cathedral itself of Notre Dame. As the surface began, there was the beginnings of an absolute bloodbath with bullets just flying everywhere. The man next door to Helen was killed. This story, which as she said, was the scoop of her career, was the first thing I knew about women like Helen who had been um, getting to the front lines and reporting uh, during the Second World War. And so I, I wanted to find out more about her, and, but I also thought it would be sensible to do it as a group biography because some of the women wouldn't, wouldn't simply be well, well enough known to justify a, a book in themselves. And I wanted to choose women who, whose different experiences of the war would allow me to actually also tell the narrative of the mm. war so I could weave their stories in to the bigger picture. And one of the women, one of the other women you feature is Claire Hollingsworth. She discovered the evidence of the preparations to invade Poland, the yeah. acts that would start the Second World War. Could you just briefly tell us how she came across that? Yeah, well, it was, this was amazing. She was literally a week into her career as a journalist. She'd been sent down to southwest Poland. You know, Britain and France and Germany were still sitting around the negotiating table. There was still, the British at least believed they could still avert the war. And she was not convinced. So she borrowed a diplomatic car, illegally crossed the border into Germany, just looking to see if she could see any activity. And it was completely reckless. She had no papers, no permission. She could have been shot as a spy. And Many fortuitous things would happen to Claire in the course of her long career, but this was probably the most extraordinary because she was driving along a road just uh, near the German frontier, which was suspiciously lined with these huge Hessian screens. And luckily for her, a gust of wind blew aside one of these screens and allowed her to look down into the valley below. And there she saw nine panzer divisions lined up, pointed in the direction of Poland. And it was clear to her then, obviously, that Germany had no intention of abiding by any negotiations that were being, uh, or agreements that were being made at the, during those um, discussions. So that was the 29th of August. She filed through copy. Yes, they, the Germans are planning to invade. And then, of course, on the morning of the 1st of September, when she was awoken by the sound of anti-aircraft fire, she realized the invasion had begun. And amazingly, the British were still so convinced that you know, they were winning at the negotiating tables that when she phoned through to the embassy in Warsaw, she had to hold the telephone receiver out of the window to convince hmm. 
one of the embassy staff that yes, actually the Germans are now in Poland and mm. the war has begun. Really is an incredible account. Are you right that the Second World War was a defining opportunity for female correspondents? Why? Um, partly because it was such a huge and sprawling conflict. I mean, with, with the fighting spreading almost around the world, foreign news desks were obviously short of journalists. And even though the military were trying to keep women from the news, the actual war news, there was still so many stories for them to cover because of course, with cities being bombed, with refugees covering half of Europe, there were so many stories that women could write. Some women in Britain particularly came into their own reporting on the Blitz. I mean, the, the, the army couldn't keep the women away from those bombed streets and they were in a way braving as much danger as they would have been uh, in a battle zone. So the newspapers needed them. The fact that they managed by hook or crook to get there, the fact that they, they did come back with such extraordinary stories, uh, I think allowed them then to prove their mettle and although it wasn't a straight road to progress, you know, after the Second World War, there's no question that, you know, my generation of women did pave the way for, you know, women like Christina Lamb and Lindsay Hilson today. And these women that you feature after the Second World War, I mean, they experienced so much, they witnessed such horrors. It was incredibly difficult. It damaged them. They couldn't adapt to civilian life. This is something that... Uh, today's service personnel who've been to the front line may well, some of them, be able to relate to. Uh, what did they go through? I mean, how how did it destroy? Did it destroy their lives as well as making them? I think for those who entered the concentration camps and witnessed firsthand the horrors there, that never left them. Uh, and someone like Lee Miller, who went into Dachau really actually on the heels of the liberating army. She wrote later that the stench of Dachau never left my nostrils. And she did suffer what we now recognize as PTSD for the rest of her life. She became a drunk for many years. She found it very difficult. She, she couldn't talk about her war experiences to anyone. I mean, her son never even knew about them until after she died and he discovered boxes and boxes and boxes in the attic of her contact sheets and her manuscripts. Many of them, I think, found it very difficult just to settle back into a smaller life. You know, they've been for years sort of jiggered up on the adrenaline of daily news reporting, living on a knife edge of danger, a feeling that they were part of a story that was much bigger than themselves, you know, having a real sense of purposefulness that, you know, women certainly in the 1930s struggled to realise. As, as Martha Gellhorn wrote, you know, however shredded up inside she felt at the end of the war, it had been a kind of home to her and she yeah. didn't know where she could settle afterwards. Um, and although a couple of my women did marry and have children and managed to readapt, I think most of them the choices they'd made to become war correspondences and the sacrifices they'd made made it difficult for them to settle to any kind of domestic life or family life. Remained loners 
And as you say, Martha Gellhorn said that, that reporting from war, it was like a, like a home to her. And she said um, she was getting something out of history that is more than anyone has a decent right to hope for. Um, I'm wondering, you know, when you look at today's service personnel, how much of that kind of need, that, that, that uh, kind of craving that these women experience is something that service personnel may be motivated by to, to sign up to the armed forces? I, I think so. I, I think, yes, they were ambitious journalists, but they felt a profound sense of duty, a profound sense that, that this war was about righting wrongs or staunching the spread of, a, of the evil of fascism. So it mattered to them. And, and I think for service personnel now, so much news is available to us. We have such a kind of often harrowing clarity about what's going on in the world that, you know, some people are moved to demonstrate, some people are moved to join charities and some people are joined to, are moved to join an army. You know, it's, it's interesting. Many of my women started out in their youth as pacifists. You know, they were highly idealistic, quite romantic young women. And yet by the end, you know, they were all absolutely profoundly committed to this war and bearing witness to it. Judith Mackle, really good to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. This is Sidrath.